So we come to the scripture this morning. I want to ask you to turn to Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, Acts in chapter 7. I want to begin reading with verse 54, Acts chapter 7, please. And as you find that, let's uh, pray together. Uh, God, this is your word, and um, we trust that it will be life to us. Um, uh, you tell us that this book is alive. It's like no other, so we know these words have been breathed out by you, though these in particular penned by Luke. But we pray that you would meet us in them Teach us through them, strengthen us by them. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground uh, their teeth at him. The they are the religious leaders. The him is Stephen. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Uh, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord uh, remains forever. Um, We've been in this particular season of uh, our church life uh, together, uh, been uh, looking at various encounters that people had with Jesus and and uh, and he with them. Uh, this is a time in the season of the church where we consider the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so we're considering uh, encounters with the risen Jesus. Uh, this morning, we're going to up our game just a bit and we're going to see an encounter with the risen and ascended Jesus. This encounter that this man, uh, Stephen, has with uh Jesus, it's profound. Life-changing, really, if we can grasp what's taking place here. Because Stephen encounters Jesus while he's dying. Uh, more so, even while he's being killed. This one who is a martyr for the faith. It's disturbing um, uh, to read this passage. But yet it's encouraging in the same way because Stephen sees Jesus and that changes um, everything. Jesus doesn't even say anything. And yet still this great encounter we have between Stephen and the risen Lord. Now, as as we look at this passage, I'm not going to be able to say, because it isn't true, that what happened to Stephen would be normative to us, that we'll, one, die as a martyr. Number two, in our dying, actually have a vision of Jesus in the same way that he had this uh, vision. Uh, but still, there's something here true in Stephen's experience, true for us as well, that we can uh, come to even as we um, 
consider death. Death is a fact. Uh, Our own death and the death of those we love. So take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Um, Death is in our minds these days. And I must confess that every Sunday I read the text... I laid a number of texts out to, to preach from concerning these encounters with Jesus, this being one of them. And, and so I, I take one of those up and, and I ask this question. So what's in this text that doesn't have it all to do with uh, COVID? Well, what's in this text that doesn't have anything at all to do with the pandemic in which we're experiencing? Because I, I don't want to just play on our emotions. I, I have this, this fear that, that we're going to take up uh, these issues and, 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 They'll all be related to the moment in which we live. And then I realize I'm preaching in the moment in which we live. We're reading the Bible in the moment in which we live. Not to consider the moment in which we live uh, probably draws more attention to it than not considering it. Uh, If I have any consolation, I read a lot of sermons or read a lot of sermons uh, throughout the course of my life. Most of them uh, from uh, decades in the past, and I realized that every sermon preached in a particular life context reflects that particular life context. So if I'm reading sermons uh, from the 40s, they talk about the war. From the 50s, they're talking about what's going on there in the 60s and the 70s, and then even in generations past. So, so here we are in the midst of a situation where we read of, hear of, Death and statistics every day. And now we take up a passage, I trust, by the providence, the good providence of God, um, about someone dying. I've always been struck by a comment that John Wesley made. He made it in response to a question. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Uh, and the question that was put to Wesley was this. Uh, what's distinctive about your people? Now, he could have said a number of things because there were a number of things about those early Methodists. He could have said they're devoted to prayer. They're devo- devoted to, to studying the Bible. They're devoted to obeying the commands of Jesus. But here's what he said. He said, our people die well. And by that, he he didn't mean that their deaths were pleasant necessarily, or that there was no pain or suffering in the midst of their death. Uh, They died just like everyone else died, some in pain, some not. But but he wasn't talking about the circumstances of their death. He just simply said they die well. That's to say, when they die, they're not afraid. When they die, they have no regrets. When they die, their conscience is clear. When they die, they're not bitter or angry. When they die, they die in faith. That's what he meant. He said, what's distinctive about our people is they're ready to die. They're prepared for it. And when it comes, they die. They die well. Stephen died well. Now, the occasion of his death was horrible. The occasion of his death was that religious leaders were throwing rocks at him until he breathed his last. And his dying well didn't mean that he felt no pain. 
It didn't mean that the rocks didn't hurt. It didn't mean that they didn't kill him. They did. And you can only imagine all that went through those moments, that process. What he felt and experienced. Not simply the physical pain, but, but the emotional pain of, 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 of having the message of the gospel being rejected by the very ones who should be receiving it, who should understand it, who should get it. But he died well. He died in faith. He wasn't even angry at them. In fact, his last words were, Father, don't hold these things against them. You'd have every right to be angry at them, but, but he wasn't, you see. Something about dying in the faith that enabled him, you see, to die, to die well. Because, you see, we all must really face it. it. It probably is a topic that we should think about together more than we even even do. If you know Karen and me, you know that if you have children, we've often instructed you when the time is appropriate to talk to your kids about death. To talk to your kids, especially about your death and the death of others that that you all love, so that they'll know how to think about it. Um, we did that with our children at appropriate ages, of course, in appropriate ways. But we did that with our children. Um, and, and we told them, you see, when, when we die, it may not seem to be the right time for you, for us to die. We don't know. Or the right circumstances, we don't know. But when we die, and when those we love die, we, we want you to continue on in the faith. Don't be angry at God, but seek him. Seek his word and, and seek his strength and seek his wisdom and seek his, his grace and his power during this time. And above all else, the right, the right thing to do when we die is to worship. To, to, to worship, to gather with the people of God and to worship him. And to say that we know God that you're good. And we know God that you've conquered sin and death. And thus, we worship you. And of course, if you know our lives, you know that paid off for us. Uh, when 11 years ago, just this past month, uh, Karen almost died from uh, bacterial meningitis. And our kids by that time were all in their 20s, all had their own faith. And yet still we faced it together. Karen was in a coma. She didn't know what was going on. But we faced it together. In faith. And they were ready if she died. So it's important for us to think about it. It's important for us to think about death. There was it who said that uh, the only thing certain in life are death and taxes. We think about taxes all the time. Death is more certain. So we should think about it. And, and God knows that. You see, that the, the wonderful grace of God is he, he knows this. He knows this is here, this death. And in fact, the apostle calls it the last enemy. Right? The last enemy. Oh, Jesus has conquered sin and death. We know that by the cross. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Paul writes, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We know that. The apostle says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
So we have all that, but we know that, that in our lives particularly, still we die. It's, it's rather like the last enemy for every particular person. Francis Schaeffer, I think, was the one who says death is the final apologetic. Does it really work at death, this faith that we have? If it doesn't work, then it's of no real use to us. It's the ultimate for us. Does it work then? And, uh, and in Stephen's life, we can see, yes, indeed, uh, it did, in fact, work. He was a martyr, we say. It's interesting in, in Greek, martus and the other um, words like that that we translate martyr also are translated as witness. Uh, because to be a witness, in a sense, is to give your life, even if you don't do it literally. That is to say, to be a true witness, you're willing to say, if I'm not telling the truth, then I should die. Or to say, I'm willing to die for this. It is really true. And we see it in, in people like Stephen and others who've been persecuted for the faith and, 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 and actually given their lives for this gospel, for the truth. And, and yet even as believers in Jesus, we're all martyrs in the sense that we say, I'm staking my life on this being true. If it's not true, I'm dead. If nothing at all. We're staking our lives on this. And as I said, we, we don't have any grounds for thinking that necessarily we're going to follow in, in Stephen's footsteps to be martyred. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, generally, most Christians die, we would say, in natural causes and so forth. But Jesus prepared us just in case. You remember from the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was, was teaching. I, I don't know how this this first came to them, and as they first listened to it, and heard it, and understood it, Jesus is saying these wonderful things, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. But then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And you have the sense that the people around Jesus begin to scratch their heads going, wait a minute, <laughs> we might be persecuted for this? We're following after you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Stephen would know the reality of that. Not every Christian would, but he would know it. Then Jesus, when he was with his disciples on that last night before he was betrayed, John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Oh my, he's telling them this could happen. And then, of course, the apostle Peter, living and writing in the days in which he lived and wrote to Believers in First Peter chapter 4 puts it like this. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, you see. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, Peter understood fiery, literal fiery trials really being burned for the sake of Christ. Could happen. Could happen. But whether it comes by way of persecution or death or not, it still will come. And we want to ask the question, how is it that I can grab a hold of what Stephen knew and saw? And how can it inform my own life and death? How can I say with the psalmist, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. I mean, here was Stephen. He was right in the face of evil. Yet he didn't need to fear it. Know what it would bring his own death. He knew and would see that the Lord was with him. So what is it that... Uh, Stephen saw, how is it that he encountered the risen and ascended Jesus? Uh, Take a look here in Acts, in chapter 7, verse 55. It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Can you picture that? Can you picture Stephen being stoned and all that could could look like? And then he looks up and he, he sees this, verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of of God. And and there he is. And that's what got him into trouble. (laughs) When he said he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's fascinating is, in every other um, note in Scripture, uh, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's a number of passages that say that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. We say that in one of our creeds, that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. He's seated, and and we see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. It said that his work is finished, and now he's he's seated on this throne at the right hand of God, at the power of God, ruling and reigning. And that's a wonderful picture. But now here, uniquely in the scripture, we find Jesus standing. And there's been a number of speculations about what, what that could mean. Why did Jesus stand? And, and, and some say that he, he stood to receive the first martyr. Others say that he, he stood because we read in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus saying, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And so they say Jesus stood to, to acknowledge this, that Stephen was acknowledging Jesus in the gospel before men. And so now, before his Father in heaven, Jesus was standing to acknowledge Stephen. Some have speculated that Jesus always stands when one of his comes into glory. None of those, or all of those, could be true. We don't know why he stood exactly because the text doesn't tell us. It only says that he did, but it, it draws our attention to Jesus. It draws our attention, attention to him in such a way that we, we see how gracious of him. How gracious of him. How kind of him. How merciful of him. How loving of him to be there standing as he receives Stephen at this moment. 
But what really got their attention was when Stephen refers to Jesus as the as the Son of Man. It is a head scratcher in one sense. First, you wonder why is it that they didn't like Stephen? He was a great guy. Everything we know about Stephen, which isn't much, he just appears in Acts chapter 6 and, and then is martyred in Acts chapter 7, and that's the last we hear of him. But uh, in, in Acts chapter 6, he, he's so vital to the church. Uh, you might remember a situation that took place in the early church that there were widows who felt as if they weren't being adequately cared for. So the apostles got together and said, let's appoint seven godly men to solve this situation to make sure that these widows are being properly taken care of. And and so if you flip back to Acts chapter 6, you find that uh, uh, verse 5, one of them was Stephen. And the characteristic of Stephen was that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he, along with the other six, um, dealt well with the situation. Everyone was taken care of and everyone was satisfied And the gospel progressed. And then in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so you see, here is one particularly anointed by God in such a way that he's he's, um, um, doing great signs and wonders. Miracles are happening around him as he's ministering the gospel. And, And that ruffled the feathers. Of the religious leaders, and so they began to bring charges against him. And they they said he's speaking against Moses, he's speaking against the law, he's speaking against the temple. And they twisted all of this. And so then Stephen begins to lay out his defense. And as he lays out his defense, what he says in a sense is that, no, it isn't I who is twisting these things about Moses and the law and the temple. I'm not the one who's wrong here. You are. You missed it. You missed what the law really means. You missed whom the law really pointed to. You, you've missed the one Moses talked about when he said there's going to be one who is like me who's going to come. Uh, you missed the point of the temple. In fact, you've always missed it. And now the righteous one has come and you've killed him. Uh, you can imagine that would, you know, tick them off a bit. But they really got mad when he said he saw the son of man. So the, the question is, why? Why is it that? Why was it that expression that, 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 that got them? And in fact, if you think about the life of Jesus, when he was on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, that's what got Caiaphas so upset. That Jesus said, a day will come when you'll see the Son of Man, essentially in glory, sitting at the right hand. And then Caiaphas says, well, that's blasphemy. So, so what is there about this Son of Man? Well, if you take just the expression, Son of Man, it, it could simply generically mean one who has the characteristics of a man. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament quite often. Just of human beings. Ezekiel is referred to uh, by God on various occasions as son of man. That is, you're, you're, you're a man and you represent men. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this and be a prophet. Go be a prophet and go speak to men on my behalf. Son of man. You, you understand men. Go, go. You're among them. 
But when we come to the New Testament, it's fascinating that that expression, the Son of Man, is used over 80 times. And except for two or three times, it's used by Jesus of himself. It's the most popular expression that Jesus used about himself. He called himself Son of Man more than he called himself anything else. Now, I would rather use the Son of God if I were him, but, 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 but I'm not. And he used Son of Man. And so, what's the point of it? Well, there's a reference back in Daniel chapter 7. And this is what the Old Testament religious leaders, the the Israelite religious leaders who knew the Old Testament, uh, were no doubt thinking when Jesus used it and now when it's used by Stephen. If you look in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Now this is... This is one of the crazy visions that Daniel received. So if you back up a bit, you can, you can read about it. But, but in summary, what he sees are a number of beasts who represent evil nations, powerful evil nations. And the question then is, who is going to conquer these evil nations? So verse 9, as I looked, the eye there is Daniel, as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, the Ancient of Days took his seat His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands uh, times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. You see the scene. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so, so God conquers them, but, but, but they're still allowed a measure of power. Then verse 13, and this is the point. I saw the, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him uh, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And when Jesus said, I'm that one. I'm the son of man. I'm the one to whom has been given all dominion and all rule and all power. They said, wait a minute. That's reserved for one who's God. And that was the blasphemy. You're being a man, making yourself out to be God. You're being a man or saying you have dominion over all things. And Jesus said, yes, that's exactly right. That's who I am. And that's what made Caiaphas and the rest angry Enough for Jesus to call for his crucifixion. That's what made this crowd of religious leaders angry enough to want to kill Stephen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, son of man. The characteristics of man. uh, He did. He was born of a poor virgin woman, but born. He grew up. Like other kids, scripture said in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. You remember that verse. Um, experienced real life as a real human being, as a, as a real man. He knew weariness. He knew hunger. 
He knew temptation. He knew real life. Even more so, more thoroughly than any other human being would ever experience it. He knew it in its fullness, even to the point of betrayal and and death. Remember how he puts it regarding himself as the son of man. We can find this in various places, but in Mark and chapter 9 and verse 30, and Jesus was teaching his disciples and he said, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he'll rise. See, when Jesus knew why he had come, he had come to represent human beings before God, before the Father. He'd come as this son of man, one like them. And he came to conquer sin and death so that he would be exalted, so that he would be given dominion. And you remember after the resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. I'm that very one, you see. I'm that one. He, he knew as the son of man that he would be uh, given in, in uh, Mark in chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember another time that that Jesus had was teaching, and it was days before social distancing, and people crowded into a house together. Can't you? Don't you love that? I can't wait till we can crowd into a house together. But there were so many crowded into this house together that uh, that, that that this man who was paralyzed couldn't be brought to Jesus in the normal kind of way through the door. So they brought him through the roof. And Jesus was going to heal him. But he wanted to prove to them, not simply that he could heal, but that he had the power to forgive sins. And so he says to them, to prove to you, to show to you, that the Son of Man there's the power on earth to forgive sins. I say to this man, rise up and take up your bed and walk. You see, he says, ah, that's me. The son of man has the power to forgive sins. Why? Because he would die for those sins. To free those sinners from the penalty of those sins. So that he, as the representative, could declare them forgiven. So you see, when Stephen uh, sees this son of man, he's seeing, in essence, his high priest and his king. He's seeing this one who is the son of man who has been given dominion. This son of man who has given himself to die for the sins of sinners. So that sinners could be freed from their guilt and forgiven. And, and, And then he's exalted to rule and reign over all of his work so that Sinners could come to faith and be forgiven their sins. And now here's Jesus. And Stephen is dying. And he looks up and he sees the heavens opened. Opened. Now, now these religious leaders would say, wait a minute, it can't be opened. Because you see, the only way, really, that sins can be forgiven is for one of us priests 
the high priest, once a year to go into this place where nobody else can go. This place that's really closed. And it's closed because we're sinners. And so the only way to get in there is for the high priest first to make sacrifices for his own sins. And then he takes this one goat and he goes in all by himself once a year. And he sprinkles the blood of this slain animal on the seat of mercy, the seat of propitiation, the seat of atonement, so sins could be forgiven. And then he comes out, and he takes another goat, and he confesses the sins of the people on it, and that goat goes off, so they see their sins going away. And he said, that, that's, that's the way it happens. It isn't opened at all, not to everybody. Well, it is now. It is now because the great high priest, the one and only high priest, has made sacrifice because he is the sacrifice, the son of man. And, and now he's in glory and he rules and reigns over it. And so it's, it's open. I'm, I'm surprised, Stephen, to say, you remember when Jesus was crucified that the veil keeping us out of the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom. Bottom to top, top to bottom, God went, come in. And so now heaven's open. But the way is opened only through the one who rules and reigns. The one who is our high priest. This one who is Jesus. So, the Apostle Paul would write in Second Corinthians and chapter 5. Verse 21, this, it says, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And then the author of Hebrews lays it out like this in Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is Jesus, partook of the same things that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, son of man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in times, in times of need. See, the heavens are open. Our high priest has made the way. You remember that when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, do you remember what he, he said to them? He said a number of things. But one of the things that he said, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. I learned that passage from the King James Version as a kid. In my father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. That's a big house if it houses mansions, right? Many rooms. What's he mean? He means, I've gone to open up heaven to you. 
I've come to have glory to you. I've come to open up the presence of God to you. I want you to be where I am. And that's where I will be. And so you'll be with me. Now by my spirit, but a day will come when I'll come for you. You see? And so when Stephen sees heaven's opened, yes, of course, the way is prepared. Everything's there. And so you see, as we think about death, our own death, the death of those we love, especially the death of those who die, as we say, in the Lord, believing in Jesus. This is a great vision, a great passage for us. As I say, we may not see this when we're dying, so see it now. See it now. Have it in your mind. Have it in your heart. Uh, so that when the time comes, if you're aware of it, then you can be meditating upon these things. I've said before, and I know that I sound rather odd to some, but I've said before that I, I do spend time thinking about what I'll think about as I'm dying. I want to have some things prepared. <laughs> it probably says more about me than I want to say. But I want to have some things prepared so that they come to mind. I rehearse them. Sometimes at night when I'm not able to sleep, I'll rehearse these things in my mind. And Karen will say, what did you say? And I'm just rehearsing them. <laughs> Sometimes out loud uh, to think about these things. And this is one of the things that I think about. The heavens are opened. And there is the Son of Man. Now, in my mind, he's standing, but he doesn't have to be. Uh, Because he's opened, he's opened up heaven, you see. Because you see, when human beings are dying, the thought is, what's next? And we have an inherent insecurity about what's next. Because deep down, we know God is what's next. And we wonder, will I be worthy to enter into his presence? Will I be received by him? Now we see this insecurity all the time in our lives anyway, right? Go back to junior high. Every room you walked into in middle school, junior high, you wondered, Anybody going to like me? Am I going to be accepted here? And still, even as adults, we have the same kinds of fears. You know as well as I do, there are places where you wonder if you actually are qualified or worthy to really go. Let me give you an outlandish one. I know that I'm not worthy to go to Buckingham Palace and sit with the queen. I know if I try that, I'll, I'll be arrested, Right? Now, I could try to fake it. Maybe I could try in some way in particular. And maybe uh, if I were really good at this, I I could get in. But the whole time I'm there, I'll be thinking I'm going to be found out and kicked out because I know that I really don't belong here. So what alternative do I have? The only alternative I have is maybe if I could go in with the prince and he's on good terms with his mom, which isn't always true. But let's say that he is. He has the right to go in if he would invite me to come. And if he would invite me to go in with him, then I could actually be there. See, that's it, isn't it? That's a silly example, but, but that's it, isn't it? That, that we are not worthy. We know that. I mean, what, what, what is it to be worthy to be in the presence of God? 
To be one who's holy, to be one who's pure, to be one who has glorified him in every way in life that loves as he loves. I, I'm not worthy of that. To be in his presence. But Jesus says, he is worthy. And he is there. And he says, trust in me. Come in me. Come clothed in my righteousness. Come forgiven because of what I've done. And here I am. I've opened heaven to all who come through me. And, and so when I'm dying and, and when I'm thinking, am I really worthy to realize, no, but he is. And I'm in him. And Stephen would see the Son of Man, his high priest, the Son of Man, the one who rules and reigns. Yes. Ah. He needn't be afraid. He needn't feel insecure at that, at that point. And then not only that, to realize this one who rules and reigns, rules and reigns from a throne of grace. I mean, that's it. It's a throne of grace. He, he rules in grace through grace. Because you might be thinking, I'm, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve even his help in the midst of my dying moment. Or I've been unwise. I don't deserve his help in my dying moment. And that's when we realize it's a throne of grace. You're right, you are a sinner. You, you've been unwise, I'm sure, as I have been, and all of that, and I don't deserve it, but, but that's not the point of it. The point is, it's a throne of grace. It's not on my merit, you see. And so he says, I sympathize with your weakness. I'm your priest, I'm your high priest. I, I represent you. I know your life. I'm able to sympathize with you at every turn, at every moment. I've died too, you know. That's what he says. Under worse situations than you. I've actually experienced the wrath of my father. I, I, I understand. Call upon me. I'll bring you help and grace and mercy in your time of need. And you might kick for a moment and say, but I don't deserve it. And you know, Jesus kind of goes, I know that. That's why I did what I did. And now I'm ruling from a throne of grace. My grace has authority. My grace has power. My grace is sufficient to help you and meet you. How could Stephen, in the midst of this moment, survive it? Well, because he received grace upon grace. So he was able to continue in faith even at this, even at this time. Remember what we had in our call to worship this morning. Jesus called to us. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. A wonderful invitation. Calls us, you see. And then to realize that this one who is the Son of Man, who's in glory, uh, rules and reigns over everything. And, and I, I don't know exactly, obviously, what was going through Stephen's mind. But as we look back upon it, I'm able to say... And I think Stephen would agree if he were here. He would say, Jesus ruled over every rock that was thrown. 
Jesus ruled over every rock that was thrown. That boggles our minds. But no matter what the circumstance is, and this was as bad a circumstance as one can imagine, I suppose. No matter what the circumstance is, Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's the son of man. He's in glory. He has dominion over all things. God has given him dominion over evil and he's conquered it. And even in the context of our own lives, even in the context of our own experience, he's there ruling and reigning. And again, I have not experienced this yet. I don't know the situation of my own death. But I've seen it in the death of others. And some it's easy and for some it's not. And I say that so casually. But when I say it's not, I mean it's really not. I mean, I've heard people say to me, Bill, I'm not anxious or afraid of being dead. I, I just... It's the dying part. And I get that. Everybody does. The vulnerability. The potential pain of it. The separation that you know is going to take place from those you love at the moment. That you pass. And and, and I get that. But even then still we cry out to the Lord to his throne of grace. And I'm working in my own heart to be able to cry out to say, Jesus, I know you know what's happening here, what I'm going through. I know you know it. Could you please supply me all that I need to glorify you in this moment? You supply all of that so that I can die well, that I can glorify you in this moment. And there's something fascinating here with Stephen, as you'll note, that that he dies without any bitterness. He dies without any anger, even to the point of being able to cry out to the Lord and say, don't hold this against them. What a remarkable thing. Now, that's echoing, isn't it, in your mind, Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. And there's something about these events, these moments, when I look at both Jesus and, and particularly Stephen, and I'm thinking, uh, of all people, Stephen, you should say, hey, could you stick it to them? <laughs> could you hold them accountable? <laughs> could you, you nail them for this? Uh, you know, uh, you know, at least when they leave here, make their camel nut start or something. You know, make it just be a bad rest of the day. I don't, I don't know. But hold something against them. But he says, no, 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 don't hold this. Don't hold this against them. And I think there's something about looking into the face of Jesus and, and, and realizing at that moment in time that heaven is open for us, that causes us to be compassionate, to be kind, to be forgiving. I mean, can you look in the face of Jesus and not forgive? I, I don't think so, Really? But here's something. Could you think with me about this? I've been working on this. I don't even know. I don't even know if I should say this. So if we get a lot of bad letters, we'll edit it out for the later versions of this. But here's what I've been thinking. I've met with a number of people over the years, Christians, who said, you know, before I became a Christian, I heard some people, people who are believers, and, and they've died, and I've, I've never gotten, I never had the opportunity to go to them and ask them to forgive me. 
And I feel this guilt. For some, it's grandparents or parents. And you grew up and, 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 and you lived your life as a kid and rejected the faith and your parents died. And then you come to faith and you say, oh, well, I wish I had the opportunity to tell them I'm sorry. And, and, and very honestly, I've sat with a number of people and, and the guilt is just almost overwhelming. And I've come back to this passage and I've said, here's what I think happened. First of all, they probably forgave you a long time before they died. But secondly, you can rest assured that if Stephen can look into the face of Jesus as he's dying and say, Father, don't hold this against him, you can rest assured they've forgiven you. You can rest assured that when they saw the face of Jesus, that whatever they were holding, even if it was unforgiveness, it's gone. Please receive. Please receive their forgiveness. And not only that, that I have to tell myself, if there's any whom I haven't forgiven, well, why wait? Why wait till then? Uh, and, 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 and as I'm seeing the Lord saying, oh, by the way, here's a list of folks I didn't really forgive. Could you take care of that now? Because I'll want to. Because I'll realize at that point, I should have. And so uh, let's just start now forgiving, right? Receiving it and giving it. Be a forgiving people because that's dying well to really forgive, you see. To really forgive. I mentioned, I'm almost done, I've mentioned Psalm 27 a couple of weeks ago and, and, and it comes back to mind. That's why I read it earlier in our service, especially verse verse 2. Um. The end of verse 2 at least. And, and, and it, this verse speaks of, like this. Verse 2 says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And, and, and there's a certain smile, I think, that comes to my face at least when I think about this. And I think about death has come to destroy me. But because of Jesus, death will be destroyed. See, this, this foe comes against me. It won't win. This foe comes against me and it, it looks like everything's gone. Just like when, when Jesus was crucified and he was dead and looked at the disciples and everybody else. And it, it was all done now. It's finished. It, he's gone. That's it. No hope. Uh, but, but it wasn't, you see. Death couldn't defeat him. Death can't defeat us. It will be defeated, even through our own death, (laughs) because we'll live. So when Paul says that death is the final enemy, the last enemy, yes, in each of our lives, it is once once we overcome this enemy, you see, it's done. And we overcome it because of the triumph of Christ, you see. So it won't, can't win, even though... It will come to defeat us. And finally this, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. In verse 16, the apostle writes, So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed a day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are un, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We must grab hold of this um, promise that even though we're dying, wasting away outwardly, inwardly the Lord's at work, renewing us day by day. When I am with people who are sick or dying. I pray this, I think this. Sometimes they're even unconscious or unaware or perhaps dementia has taken over and they're unable to think clearly, but I'm able to say, God, I know what you're doing here. I know that even though outwardly they're wasting away, because they trust in you, I know that you're still at work within them, that somehow, some way, I'm believing that you're renewing them day by day. Let me give a testimony to that. Uh, a little, little book from the mid-19th century called Thoughts of Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander. It's got to be good if your name's Archibald Alexander and you write it. But he writes a story, uh, an account of the death, really, of a 16th century Frenchman uh, named uh, Andrew Rivet. And uh, he was a professor of theology, uh, Dr. Rivet, and... He was preaching a sermon on Christmas Day in 1650, and um, he was 77 years old, and he died a couple of weeks later. But during that two weeks, he was able to write his thoughts, and here's what he wrote. He says, the sense of divine favor increased in me every moment. My pains are tolerable, my joys inestimable. I am no more vexed with earthly cares. I remember when any new book came out, how earnestly I longed after it. But now all that is but dust. Thou art my all, O God. My good is to approach unto thee. O what a library I have in God, and whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thou art the teacher of spirits. I have learned more divinity in these ten days that thou hast come to visit me than I did in fifty years before. That amazing. He knew a lot. I've learned more divinity, more about God, in these ten days that thou hast come to visit me than I did in fifty years before. I wonder. I wonder if Stephen would say something like that. It's just speculation. But I wonder if he said, "I've just learned more in the last fifty seconds." when I looked up and saw heavens open and the Son of Man standing, then I learned all of those other teachings, even sitting with the apostles. I wonder. So you see, you know, death. We don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to think about it. I don't like to think about it. It's uncomfortable. Next time you're able to gather with other people, you bring up death, uh, you'll be alone in the conversation after a while. But it won't win in the life of a Christian. It won't be victorious. It'll be defeated. We have to trust that even in those moments, God will be with us in such a way that we, in some way, will see that heaven is open. 
And the Son of Man has prepared a place for us. And he's there waiting for us and helping us, transitioning us. And it may well be that we learn more divinity in those moments than ever before. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us now as we think upon these things. These are heavy words. And I suppose the times that we live in bring us to these thoughts. But we do thank you that your word minces no words, but speaks boldly and directly to us. Not only about death, but even more about the gospel of grace that saves us. We trust that your word is perfect. That it revives our souls, that it makes us wise, that it causes our hearts to rejoice. And following your word, there's great blessing. So we pray in this time where death is all around us, give us grace to face it. Enable us to know the gospel of our Lord Jesus that we may be prepared for all that is to come. May it be said of us, if they die well. Enable us to be those who grieve well, but not as those who have no hope. Enable us to know that Jesus has prepared a place for us that At the right time, he'll be there to welcome us home. Enable us to love one another well, to forgive those who have hurt us, to receive the forgiveness given by you and by others. Enable those who govern over us to be prudent in their deliberations, wise in their decisions, righteous in their actions. Father, please be with all who suffer on this day, whether it's illness, your anxiety, or fear, or despair. Bring healing and calm and courage and faith. Provide for us all that we need. Protect us from this virus. Provide a vaccine that could save much hardship. Enable us to see that this life is like a mist in eternity. But in you, is preserved, is saved for all eternity. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Pray that the gospel goes forth in these days. That many repent and trust in him. Guard the ministry of our church. That we may be faithful. And this I pray. In Jesus' name.